Welcome back to the Insurance versus History podcast. I'm Meredith Brasher, your writer and host, and I'm excited to dive into more episodes where I examine how insurance has changed history, and sometimes how it failed to change history, even when it tried. I have both a bachelor's and master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years, I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. Do you want to know how history happened? Insurance can help. Today, I am going back in history, way, way back, to the beginning, or at least to what some historians say is the beginning of insurance. This episode, I'm talking about the ancient Near East, and specifically about a Mesopotamian king named Hammurabi. King Hammurabi is credited with the first written legal code in history, and with the first written reference to insurance. What did that code say? What did that code say about insurance? Was King Hammurabi really the first person to lay down a legal code? Was the reference in the code really about insurance? I have questions. This is the story of the very beginnings of insurance, and whether or not a particular society, the Mesopotamians of the ancient Near East, are responsible for the origin of insurance. And it is the story about how you should always, always double-check your references, and how what is known, or at least what we think we know, sometimes makes us forget what we do not know could change everything. If you're like me, you probably don't know a lot about the ancient Near East. So let's start with a bit of a baseline. What historians call the ancient Near East spans nearly 27 centuries. It's a huge amount of time. It's approximately the time period between 3000 BC and 323 BC. So again, this is well before the Common Era and pretty far back in recorded history. To put it into perspective, the Egyptians built the pyramids somewhere around 2600 BC to 2100 BC. The Greeks held the first Olympics in 776 BC. The Roman Republic was established around 500 BC. And Alexander the Great died in 323 BC. And yes, that is not a coincidence that the end of the ancient Near East and Alexander's death are in the same year. The area that's considered the Near East spans from Turkey in the north, through Syria and Iraq, and down into Iran. Depending on the time period and the historian, the ancient Near East can also include Egypt, Sudan and Africa, and parts of what is now Israel. But for the purposes of the discussion today, I'm talking primarily about that area from Turkey to Iraq. During this period, there weren't really countries in this area like we would define them today. For example, King Hammurabi ruled Babylon, which was a city in an area called Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is an area in the ancient Near East that falls between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. These two rivers span the length of the ancient Near East, but there's an area between them that became what we call Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is actually a Greek word that means between the rivers. Mesopotamia wasn't a country, but there were a lot of small cities with rulers like Hammurabi sprinkled around the area. During the period of the ancient Near East, some rulers like Hammurabi would try to conquer other cities and even be able to claim control of most of Mesopotamia. But until Alexander the Great, no one had conquered the entire area of the ancient Near East 
and brought it under one ruler's control. You probably have heard of King Hammurabi and Mesopotamia, but maybe like me, you found it pretty boring. And even when I started researching this episode, the first few books I found reminded me why I found this time period so boring. Maybe this sounds familiar to you. Mostly the texts went like this. This guy became king and created some monuments and then went out and conquered these other guys. Then he died and this other guy went and conquered some stuff and then these two guys fought, etc. Repeat, repeat, repeat until I cannot take any more. Nothing against military history, but a book entirely focused on who fought who and why they fought each other is just, it's boring to me. I get no sense of anything from that, of the world that they describe. It just feels flat, I guess. And like I said, when I started researching this topic for the pod, I despaired of finding anything that would make it more interesting. But I was determined to get through the research, and I'm glad I persevered and kept looking for more information. I don't often openly recommend books on the pod, though I certainly do mention books in my show notes if you didn't know that already. But in this case, I do have to make an exception because it saved me from a very boring episode. Just last year, Dr. Amanda H. Podney, who is a professor emeritus at California State Polytechnic University, published a book on the ancient Near East called Weavers, Scribes, and Kings. This is a big book. It's something like 600 pages of text or so, not counting the footnotes, but this is a fantastic book. This is not a book about which guy fought who and when and why. It's about everyone else who lived in the ancient Near East. She doesn't ignore the fighting or the kings, but it's in context, as she completely fills out the day-to-day world of the ancient Near East. It's so readable, too. Go, buy it, read it. It's made me a fan of the ancient Near East. I didn't think that was possible. Anyway, in this ancient Near East, there were various rulers. As I said, usually they ruled cities, not countries. King Hammurabi is one of the ones we know the most about, though I find it amazing we know anything about any of them at all. And there's still a ton that's unknown or that we may be wrong about just because we can only use what we have discovered. And there's probably a lot more out there that we haven't uncovered or is lost forever. We are lucky in the sense that the people of the ancient Near East wrote a lot of things on clay tablets. They used clay partly because they could write it down and then erase it and then remake it. But when the clay is left alone in high and dry temperatures, these clay tablets become almost indestructible, which is how they could be discovered thousands of years later. Here's what we know about Hammurabi, in short. He was one in a long line of hereditary kings in a city called Babylon in what is now Iraq. Babylon was located in a great area, in that area we call Mesopotamia, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Being between these two rivers, this meant that the area was very fertile, relatively speaking, which of course meant that Babylon could support a significant number of people because they could feed them. King Hammurabi reigned Babylon from 1792 BC to 1750 BC, about 60 years, which was a pretty long time for a king. I'm going to call him a king because that's what the historians call him. No one knows how old he was when he became king, but he must have been fairly young to have ruled for 60 years. His father had been king before him, but only for about 13 years, which seems to have been a more typical length of time for kings to rule. And yes, there were only kings in Babylon 
And in Mesopotamia, though, the book Weavers, Scribes, and Kings does do a great job of explaining how women exercised power in this period, and they did wield, in some cases, quite a lot of power. King Hammurabi was ambitious, and he was successful in conquering neighboring city-states. And by the time he died, pretty much all of what we call Mesopotamia was under his rule. However, for those conquered people, it often didn't result in much of a change in their regular day-to-day lives. Like many leaders in the ancient Near East, Hammurabi liked to create monuments to himself. They did like to create monuments, that's for sure. I mean, these guys also named years after themselves, which is how we know how long Hammurabi ruled at all. Around Hammurabi's 38th year of ruling Babylon, he decided to create a monument that would demonstrate his fairness and his greatness to all of his subjects. This monument to Hammurabi's greatness created by him that we know best is called Hammurabi's Code. It's a big black stone about seven feet tall. The top of the stone shows a carving of what looks like Hammurabi sitting on his throne, handing a scroll to a scribe, though there are a lot of theories about what that picture actually is, and generally speaking, these days, the current theory is that the person sitting on the throne is a god, and not him. Unlike some rulers in the ancient Near East who referred to themselves as gods, Hammurabi did not ever claim divinity. The rest of the carving on the seven-foot-tall black stone is a long inscription. The first part of the inscription is praise for Hammurabi, no surprise, and all he's done for the people of Babylon and Mesopotamia. The rest of the inscription is a long list of legal codes, therefore Hammurabi's code. You can actually see this today if you are in Paris and you decide to go to the Louvre. There probably were more of these inscribed stone monuments, Most archaeologists and historians seem to think that King Hammurabi had a few of these made, with the same inscriptions, not different ones, and sent to different parts of Mesopotamia for display, but the only one we currently have is the one in the Louvre. Hammurabi's code itself is 282 separate paragraphs about various legal issues. It's a lot. Many of the laws follow a sort of pattern. First is the action, and the second is the consequences. For example, you do this, and then as a result, this is your punishment. And they're very specific. The code doesn't say, if you injure someone, this is your punishment. Instead, it's very specific, and there are different punishments for each type of injury. If you blind someone, then here's your punishment. If you break someone's arm, this is your punishment, and it's different than if you blind someone. I thought that was interesting, as it's an assigning a different value for each type of injury something that might feel very similar to those insurance people who deal with something like, I don't know, workers' compensation. No, Hammurabi does not get credit for workers' compensation. Absolutely not. This was not a fair or no-fault system in any way. And it wasn't fair. People of higher status got more leniency than people of lower status. And yet there are some elements of fairness that we consider important even today. Hammurabi's code gives people the right to defend themselves and extends the idea of innocence until guilt is proven. You can tell what the issues in Babylon and Mesopotamia were from this code because some types of legal issues get a lot more coverage than others. There are a lot of laws about marriage, adultery, divorce, and remarriage, a lot of laws about land ownership, and a lot of laws about contractual agreements. I tell you what, the people of the ancient Near East loved a contract. I'll come back to that later because it's important to the discussion, but 
just put a pin in that for now. But what's interesting about the code is that there aren't very many lines about things that, for example, we would consider felonies, like murder, theft, and assault, though there are some. Only seven crimes result in the death penalty. Whatever the death penalty meant in the ancient Near East, we have no idea how that was carried out. So does that mean that there was no need for extensive laws about these types of things? Were those types of things uncommon, or were they just simply handled without needing to consult the law? We don't really know. When Hammurabi's code was discovered in 1901, one of the things that historians focused on was that some of the things in the code were similar to things in the Christian Bible. In 1901, to be honest, there were a lot of people who connected every ancient historical discovery to the Bible, though I suspect that would not surprise you. I mean, a lot of them were in the areas of the Middle East excavating things specifically with the goal of trying to prove the Bible or the Old Testament's history was accurate. The Bible has, quote, an eye for an eye, unquote, and Hammurabi's code had something similar. Law 196 in Hammurabi's code says, quote, If a man has caused the loss of a gentleman's eye, his eye shall cause to be lost, unquote, a.k.a. an eye for an eye. So, of course, the scholars in 1901 thought, well, then, of course, we can now trace the Bible back through Hammurabi. Awesome. Now, mind you, Law 198, two laws later, says, quote, If he has caused a poor man to lose his eye, he shall pay one mina of silver, unquote. So there's your status affecting your punishment. Another example in this whole eye-to-eye discussion is something like, quote, If a builder builds a house for a man and does not make his work strong, And if the house he built collapses and kills the owner, that builder shall be killed. If it kills the owner's son, the son of the builder shall be killed, unquote. Well, that certainly would add a real twist to property insurance, don't you think? There were a lot of problems with these early explorers' assertions, some of which I'll cover later, but mainly you could probably argue that it was pretty myopic. You see what I did there? Of them to assume anything, just because one law out of hundreds sounded a lot like one law out of the Bible. I mean, while some laws in Hammurabi's code seem logical to us today, I mean, not that an eye for an eye is logical, don't get me wrong, but it's familiar, at least. Some of these laws are a bit gonzo, which reflects the particular culture that was the ancient Near East and their religion. For example, and these are the first two laws of the entire code which suggests, at least to me, that they were considered very important. Law number one, quote, If a man weave a spell and put a ban upon a man and has not justified himself, he that wove the spell upon him shall be put to death. Unquote. Law number two, If a man has put a spell upon a man and has not justified himself, he upon whom the spell is laid shall go to the holy river He shall plunge into the holy river, and if the holy river overcome him, he who wove the spell upon him shall take to him himself his house. If the holy river makes that man to be innocent and has saved him, he who laid the spell upon him shall be put to death. He who plunged into the holy river shall take to himself the house of him who wove the spell upon him. Yeah, exactly. By the way, you didn't actually have to get into the river yourself if you could find slash force someone else to do it for you. Good luck with that. So, great. There was a code and it had some laws, some of which make more sense to our modern brains than others, but, you know, what about this insurance thing? 
Well, there is a section of laws that deals with merchants and trade. The ancient Near East did a lot of trading, mostly over land. But during Hammurabi's rule, they were starting to do quite a bit of trading by boat, though mostly it was boats up and down the Tigris and Euphrates, not so much into the Mediterranean. By the way, both the Tigris and Euphrates run in the same direction, so which probably really stunk for the merchants because that meant you could reliably steer your ship in one direction, but coming back, people on land and probably some donkeys too had basically to tow you back to your home. But as respects Hammurabi's code and insurance specifically, I think we're looking at Law 103. I'm going to read Law 102 first because I think it gives us some context. Law 102. If a merchant has given to the agent, money is a favor. And where he has gone, he has seen loss. The full amount of money he shall return to the merchant. Okay, so that sounds like a loan. It makes sense. You have to pay the money you borrow back, even if you have a loss on your end. Although it kind of sounds like he might be able to forego paying any interest that would have been assessed normally. That's kind of a good deal. Law 103, here's where you have to pay attention. If while he goes on his journey, the enemy has made him quit whatever he was carrying, the agent shall swear by the name of God and shall go free. In this case, the borrower does not have to pay back any money, not the initial loan or interest that may have accrued, if they lose their cargo due to being attacked by an enemy, I guess. Huh. So, now we have introduced a real element of risk for the person lending the money. They might not get any of it back. And a little bit of protection for the person who borrowed the money if one type of loss occurs. It's not insurance. Well, not quite. But it does sound a bit like, well, it sounds a bit like something called bottomry, which is a very rudimentary pre-insurance product. It's interesting. As I was researching this episode, I kept coming back to one thing that I thought about a lot. What exactly is insurance? Yeah, sure, I know the actual definition, but maybe it helps to clarify kind of how we define it today. That can be kind of complicated, but to simplify, I think maybe this is best. It's a contract between two parties. One party pays some sort of money, and the other party agrees to give that party something, usually money, in the event that the party suffers some sort of financial loss based on whatever agreement they have made. But even that's kind of a sophisticated concept, right? Insurance didn't just pop into being with lists of covered losses and premium rates and contract wording. Frankly, insurance has been around for so long that I think we kind of take it for granted that it happened at all. Is the assumption that the concept of risk transfer is so innate in humankind that insurance would have always developed? I don't think that's the case. I talk about the history of insurance on the podcast, and most of that history is the history of Europe and the U.S., current discussion notwithstanding. Insurance concepts can be seen in other cultures, sure, but just didn't develop into the type of sophisticated products we have today on their own without outside influence from places like Italy or England. That's not to say that they couldn't have done so. It just that this seems to be how it happened. So here's where I went around and around. When you think of the very earliest insurance products, the very earliest insuring agreements, you know that there had to be some sort of evolution over time from something that wasn't insurance 
into something that kind of was insurance. So how did insurance evolve? I think it's safe to say, or at least I believe so, that it started with lending. Not banking, of course, as that's a relatively new concept, historically speaking, but lending has been around for a long time. Lending was probably one of the first things humans and groups came up with. You give me one thing, I give you something back later. It certainly predates money. I mean, even in Babylon, FYI, there was no printed money or coinage, although they used gold and silver and other things to act as money based on weight. At some point, a loan became insurance. So when thinking of how the first insurance came to be, I do think you have to start with lending. But obviously, there's one huge difference. Oh, don't get me wrong, there are a lot, but this is at the simplest level. There's one huge difference between a loan and insurance. You have to pay a loan back. That's not how insurance works. You give me premium, I don't give you that premium back. Unless there's a loss, and in that case, I probably give you more money than you paid, but again, that's going to be a more sophisticated product than these early insurances would be. What's interesting here is that these early insurances would have come out of someplace like Mesopotamia and the ancient Near East and not out of, say, Europe. They spread to Europe, and that spread is actually quite well documented. So how did the culture of Mesopotamia lead to a kind of lending that would start to look a little like insurance? Well, first, the main thing that probably increased the chances of this happening is that the people of the ancient Near East loved a contract. Man, did they love a contract. What we know about the ancient Near East, based on what has been discovered through archaeological digs, are mainly contracts. For example, in the excavations at Sumer, nine out of ten of the documents found were contracts. And not contracts about kings, though certainly there are some of them. They're mostly contracts involving regular people. As Dr. Podney says in Weaver's Scribes and Kings, Quote, the people of the ancient Near East wrote legal contracts almost as soon as they could write anything, unquote. And this is fascinating to me because this is also a culture that believed that so many things in their world were the result of how the gods felt about them and that so many things were out of their individual control. Eclipse? Gods. Plague of locusts? Gods. Death of a child? Gods. And yet... They felt confident enough about their world and how it worked that they decided to rely on contracts for just about everything. Mind you, they had to want to write these contracts. Literacy was not a given. Even Hammurabi couldn't write, although he might have been able to read. Either way, he certainly had plenty of scribes able to do both. To write a contract, you had to find a scribe who would do it for you pay him, and you also had to have witnesses. It wasn't just like jotting down a grocery list on a spare slip of paper. Contracts for everything, buying, selling, leasing, for slaves, marriages, wills, any kind of agreement. This was not a gentleman's agreement, let's shake on it kind of culture. One of the areas where they made a lot of legal contracts was, not surprisingly, trade. Back in the ancient Near East, well, places like Babylon did a lot of trade with other city-states and even other countries, as far away as Egypt. The language of most of Mesopotamia, Akkadian, became the main language for trade all over the ancient Near East. But in the beginning, trade was close to home. 
over land, not by ship, trading from one city to another. You can take this and you can kind of imagine how insurance might have come to be, based on loans. For example, say you were a craftsman. You wanted to sell your product in another city-state. How do you do that? You can sell your wares to a merchant outright, but then you lose your ability to know what that market in that other city is willing to pay you for your product, which might be a lot more than the merchant is willing to pay. Instead, you might reach out to a merchant who operates a caravan to help you sell your goods, who goes from city-state to city-state, and he knows ways to get there safely, how to speak the languages when he arrives, and how to sell and who to sell to reliably. Around 2000 BC, there were even some places you couldn't just go to without a particular seal, kind of like a passport. So merchants with those seals were important to everyone who wanted to trade. Sometimes the merchant sells goods he's purchased, but often he just acts as an agent and helps people get their own goods to market without purchasing those items outright. They're still your items and the money that they make is still yours. Great. So you want to have him help you get your goods to another market, but how do you know you can trust him is an element of risk. Sure, you can make a contract, but you're not going to have eyes on him once he leaves with all your goods, so maybe you want a little more protection than that. I'd say you probably do. You can't leave your shop, but your sons can't, so you send your sons with this merchant. You probably paid the merchant some money for them to go along, but you were responsible for your stuff or at least your sons were, so that element of risk is reduced. Okay, so no insurance or loan there, just an imposition that your sons can't work in your shop while they're away, and those sons might not come back for one reason or another either, so that's a worry, but at some point your business gets so busy that you just can't afford to send your sons away with the merchant to go traveling anymore. You could hire another worker, and maybe that's what you do, and you tell them if they go with the merchant, sell your product, and then return with the money, you will reward them with something you think they will value enough to not completely rip you off and run away. Sometimes they sent their slaves, so maybe they offered their slaves a way to buy their freedom to ensure their safe return. Or you find a way to entrust the merchant with your goods and your money in a way that ensures you don't get swindled. Again, risks. There were several ways that this might happen. Sometimes they would send a hollow ball of clay with a number of small clay tokens baked into it with the merchant. When the ball was broken at the destination, the person receiving the cargo could compare the number of tokens to the number of items received as a way to double-check that no one was skimming off the top. But I have to assume that would also require a person at your destination who you trusted implicitly not to lie. And all of this probably worked okay until people started trading at further distances, and especially once they started using ships to travel the waterways of the Tigris and Euphrates and into the Mediterranean Sea. An overland merchant caravan could carry only as much cargo as, say, the number of donkeys and carts that they had access to, and probably required quite a number of people, I mean, like maybe one person per donkey cart, I don't know. But a ship needed fewer people to carry the same amount of cargo and your sons probably couldn't just tag along. And while the overland merchant probably had some money on the line, it wasn't nearly the same amount it became when they bought a ship to do the same job via water. Because now they owned an expensive vessel, and they were on the hook in a new way. If something happened to his ship, he would be in trouble. 
And if you know anyone who owns a boat in our current time, you will be familiar with the phrase that a boat is a hole in the water you throw money into. I think that's always been the case even in the ancient Near East, and maybe even more so then. Say you were a ship's captain and you owned the ship, and when you were getting ready to leave, you had a problem. Or even worse, you got to your first destination and you had a problem. You needed money to fix something or whatever, and you had no money. All your money is tied up in the voyage. Maybe you owned the cargo and you wouldn't get paid until it sold. Or maybe you were hauling the cargo for someone else and wouldn't get paid until the cargo sold and you sailed back to your home port. What to do? You might ask a lender for a loan. What's your collateral? The guarantee you were good for the money? Well, the ship is your collateral. If you can't pay the loan back, maybe your cargo was sold for nothing or something else happened that made the voyage a disaster, the lender would take your ship in payment for the loan. So now we have a basic loan structure, right? One party, the ship owner, asks another party, the lender, for money. The guarantee that the loan will be repaid is the deed to the ship, makes sense. If everything goes well, the ship will have a successful voyage, and the ship owner will pay back the money they borrowed with interest, of course, all clearly laid out in a nice contract, written out by a scribe on a clay tablet, and properly witnessed. This loan, in which the ship serves as collateral, is what we call a bottomry loan. Bottomry loans are loans, but some people also consider them one of the very first insurance products. There's not agreement on this, but there are people that believe this. But as you can see, at first, there is no insurance component of this loan. Everything is consistent with the loan. Money, loan, ship, right? This is where we should remind ourselves what Hammurabi's Code said about merchant loans. Hammurabi's Code said, Law 102, if a merchant has given to the agent money as a favor and where he has gone, he has seen loss, the full amount of money he shall return to the merchant. Okay, that's a loan, but again, it seems to suggest that if there's a loss, the lender just has to pay back the original loan without interest. Law 103, again, pay attention. If while he goes on his journey, the enemy has made him quit whatever he was carrying, the agent shall swear by the name of God and shall go free. So that's an interesting twist. He shall go free. That implies the loan is forgiven. The merchant does not have to pay the loan back at all. The lender is out of the money completely. So now we have a loan of money, collateral, and a covered cause of loss that negates the terms of the loan. There's now a level of risk that the lender has to take on. In the case of lending rates, something that Hammurabi's Code also addressed and other ancient Near East documents got into in much more detail, the lending rate could depend on the riskiness of the voyage. The lender had to make a risk assessment and could charge more interest for higher risks. It's not quite what we expect of insurance, but it's starting to look a little more like insurance now, right? This type of loan, this bottomry loan, became quite common and was actually something that people did not only during Hammurabi's time, but up to and including the 19th century, believe it or not. The basic concept of a bottomry loan is this. A ship owner needs to borrow money urgently during the course of a ship's voyage to make some kind of essential repair. Now, obviously, you wouldn't know that a ship needed repair while it was in transit. I mean, we're thousands of years away from the telegraph, after all. But likely, while the ship is in port somewhere, while on the voyage, it needed repair. 
The ship's owner, or the captain with the ship owner's permission, if they're not the owner themselves, takes out a loan with a moneylender for these repairs at some rate of interest. The ship is listed as collateral for the loan. If the ship successfully returns home, a.k.a. it doesn't sink, the money is repaid with interest. If the ship sinks while it is in transit, the debt is entirely forgiven. The interest rate is an essential part of bottomry. The interest on these loans was pretty high. I mentioned this concept in the episode on the Titanic, the idea of something called maritime interest. Historically, lending rates for loans in the Western and Near Eastern world were often regulated. You can probably trace this back to the different religions each of them followed, and in most cases, the way that those religions viewed lending often resulted in laws about lending rates. But lending for sea voyages in particular was often different. These types of loans were subject to, originally, much higher rates than average. Eventually, interest rates for bottomry loans would become something called maritime interest, which basically meant that any interest could be applied, as long as both parties, the lender and the person asking for money, agreed to the rate. It could be 20, 30, 50 percent or more. It could be 110 percent. As long as the two parties agreed, any rate was acceptable. As you might imagine, there were definitely people who felt this was a problem. One Greek writer, Plutarch, who lived in the first century CE, called bottomry, quote, the most disreputable form of money lending, unquote, which only goes to show insurance has gotten a bad rap for a very long time. Bottomry, obviously, is missing a lot of the modern insurance hallmarks. While the lender is taking on risk for lending money, and the risk they may not be paid back at all if a particular type of loss occurs, there is no compensation for loss, which is a pretty important part of modern insurance contracts. The risk that the lender takes on is not the primary obligation. The primary obligation is the loaned money. Again, another difference. One article I looked at summed it up nicely, quote, Perhaps it would be most appropriate to say that the lender has invested in the chance to make a profit, unquote. As I said, bottomry was pretty common in the ancient Near East in some form, and then, as the people of the ancient Near East traded with the Greeks and the Romans and beyond, the concept of this bottomry loan went with it. Historians have lots of examples of bottomry loans for not only the Greeks and Romans, but even in places like India. The concept of an emergency loan to complete a maritime voyage was important enough that it persisted for at least 2,000 years before being replaced by more modern insurance and banking products. And the telegraph, of course. You can't underestimate how revolutionary being able to communicate while you were at sea was for transforming risk in the maritime industry. Bottomry and its sister product, Respondentia, deserve their own episode, but what you need to know is this. It is not really insurance, but it certainly included some concepts that would encourage the further development of insurance. Well, what does all that mean? Hammurabi's code talks about a loan, and that loan might be forgiven if a particular event occurs. Does that mean that Hammurabi's code is the first mention of insurance? That depends on who you ask. I've talked about this before on the podcast, and it's even more important here. History changes. People who study and write about history bring their biases with them. And of course, some new things can be discovered that change and improve our understanding of history as well. 
As you can imagine, when you talk about something like the ancient Near East, where we're relying on archaeology to understand a culture that died out thousands of years ago, this is particularly true. There was a boom of exploration, and frankly, exploitation, of historical sites in places like Egypt, Iran, Syria, and Iraq in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And these archaeologists and explorers brought their very Eurocentric and in many cases simply British-centric or American-centric views to what they found. So when historians in the early 20th century jumped on the idea that Hammurabi's code somehow proved or backed up the historical truthiness of the Bible, well, that certainly was partly because of this very narrow view. There's no real connection between Hammurabi and the Bible, not in the way that these explorers believed. Yes, a few of the laws sound similar, but that's not surprising, because an eye for an eye turned out to be a pretty common concept in ancient societies. What these explorers believed about Hammurabi's code was also based on what they had discovered without giving much thought to what had not yet been discovered. We know a lot more about Hammurabi than we do about other rulers in this time period, but it's not necessarily because Hammurabi was so much more important than those other rulers. It's just what was recovered. In fact, what we know about Hammurabi is based on things that were found in other places, letters and documents from other rulers and city-states, specifically from a place called Mari in eastern Syria, which contained a large number of documents that mentioned Hammurabi. Some of Babylon's ruins, dating from a much later period, have been found, but archaeologists believe that more of Babylon, maybe even the parts from when Hammurabi was king, are under groundwater tables today and are totally inaccessible. Maybe someday we will be able to access it. Wouldn't that be cool? I think that could be amazing. We need to get James Cameron on that stat. Anyway, one of the things that those early ancient Near East scholars posited was that Hammurabi's code was the first legal code ever created. That idea stuck around for a while, but it was eventually debunked as more discoveries were made about other city-states and even about how Babylon's justice system worked. Hammurabi's code isn't the first legal code. It's not even a legal code, per se. First, that's because what we know now about Babylon and Mesopotamian justice suggests these were more suggestions rather than laws, which makes his concept of bottomry really interesting, right? Trials and contractual conflicts in Babylon and most of the rest of Mesopotamia were typically brought before a judge, who was often a member of a city or village council. Council members would rotate acting as a judge, and there were clear and nasty penalties if you were corrupt or acting in a way that was considered unfair. Judges had a lot of leeway on decisions, punishments, and legal matters. Sometimes that was good, sometimes not so much. If the judge couldn't come to a decision, they could request a trial by river, in which the accused would be thrown into a river, and if they didn't drown and were able to reach the shore, they would be found innocent. I am reminded of Monty Python's Holy Grail witch trial here. Again, it does appear that if you could find someone else to take your place to be chucked into the river, you could do that, but good luck. I imagine there was probably some very enterprising person who could swim who would do that for you. We know that some of the decisions the judges came to because of the clay tablets that have been found. Once a judgment was decided, they would have a scribe write it on a clay tablet. This is also how we know that the legal wordings in Hammurabi's code were not set in stone laws. The verdicts often vary widely from the code. What the code was used for, well, there's still quite a bit of debate. 
let's call it a legal document for now. It wasn't even the first legal document we found. Now, of course, this is because people discovered things after 1902 when Hammurabi's code was uncovered. A code several centuries older belonging to the kingdom of Eshuna has similar text, an even earlier document from Lipit Ishtar, who was a Sumerian king, is also similar. There are also older documents from Sumer, one called Urnamu and another called Urukagina. One thing that Hammurabi's code does change is that some of these earlier codes assign financial punishments to things that Hammurabi's code does not. For example, these earlier codes say that it's not an eye for an eye, it's a monetary payment to make up for the lost eye. I guess people got more bloodthirsty over time, maybe? Indeed, Hammurabi's Code is the most complete legal document that's been found in Mesopotamian history. That's true. But even Hammurabi's Code is missing some text. Some is partially missing, some totally missing, which, again, is another unknown we cannot currently answer. What does that text say? The missing text could be important. We don't know. In addition, when we read about these ancient historical eras, it's important that you don't assume that the translations are 100% correct either. People are still arguing about a language that no one spoke or wrote in modern history, a language we had to figure out from the information that we found. Again, what is unknown and as yet unfound or what is unfindable could change things. This is especially important when we think about these two lines that we've discussed as related to the idea of bottomry. Law 103 could relate to bottomry, sure, and that's the assumption I'm working with, but that, of course, is assuming that the translation is correct. I really couldn't find a lot of information on this, unlike how contentious the translation of Hammurabi's code is today, but I did find something on another law code that dates from about 2000 BC that suggests that the translation of Hammurabi's code may also be subject to some future interpretation. This law code is for a place called Ugarit. In 1929, an excavation in Syria uncovered a lot of clay tablets. Some of these clay tablets described a loan agreement between two kings in 2000 BC, so again, this is even before Hammurabi's time. In the 1970s, two scholars got into a written argument about whether or not these documents describe a bottomry loan. I'm not going to go into too much detail because it is a whole lot of arguing about how words are interpreted, and you can probably imagine for a layman, it's a bit overwhelming. I don't read or speak Akkadian, and I certainly can't read cuneiform writing, which is the symbolic alphabet these documents are written in. It does not appear that anyone ever came to a consensus on whether or not the document referred to a bottomry style loan. So why should we assume that Hammurabi's code's translation is any different? Not to mention, again, that some of the codes are missing and that parts of the code that are missing and incomplete, some of them seem to be around the laws 102 and 103 we've just spent so much time discussing. Problems. I can't solve it, so maybe Hammurabi's code describes bottomry, maybe not. We know bottomry existed in Greek and Roman times, we know it came from somewhere, and we can posit that there may be other documents that discuss it that we haven't yet found. But also, again, it's still a stretch to call bottomry insurance. I'll go so far as you could maybe call it insurance-related or proto-insurance or something, but it's not really insurance. And this leads me to the thing that drove me absolutely batty while researching this topic, especially at the beginning. The way I have found research to go is that I generally take a stab in the dark at finding some sources. 
And as I start reading, then I can kind of figure out what the really good sources are and the primary sources. And eventually I find my way to those books and documents. And that's when the real research and understanding for me starts. But it can take a while. And in the case of Hammurabi, it took a lot longer than I expected. And that's because there are a lot of documents out there, not necessarily academic documents, mind you, but articles for more casual readers that make some interesting assertions. So if you are reading something that says that Hammurabi's code was the beginning of insurance or the first written mention of insurance or that bottomry was the first form of insurance, they are not correct. Most of these articles don't provide references, but some of them do. And if you go and look up that reference, you'll see another article that says that insurance started with Hammurabi or something along those lines, but again, with no actual primary source proof. And then if those articles have a reference and you look that up again, you come to another article, same story, same issue. It's like some Ouroboros of circular references and no real proof, nothing relating to an actual primary source. If you're lucky, one of those articles will reference a book called The Origin and Early History of Insurance, including The Contract of Bonhomery, by a man named C.F. Trenery. This is a book that is Dr. Trenery's doctoral dissertation, I believe. He died in 1911 and was published without any editing after his death, and while it is a very interesting book, and I'm sure Dr. Trenery and I could have some very interesting conversations if he was still alive, I have serious issues with his theories about insurance based on almost no primary sources and, again, written some years before 1911. I'm not going to name any names, but if you are an insurance person or a financial services person writing an article right now, please stop doing this. Check your references. Do they use primary sources? Even me. I provide my references in my show notes. You can check them. I try to use primary sources when I can, and barring that, to find the most reputable academic sources I can. Hammurabi's code isn't the first law code. He didn't invent insurance. It isn't even the first reference to insurance. It isn't even the first reference to bottomry. One of the best things about research today is the internet. I don't have to travel to find what I need to do research. In graduate school, I moved to another state to access a better research library, something I would never have to do today. The internet is great, but again, when you read something, it's good to ask yourself, who is saying this? What is their proof? Do they show their references? If their proof is that someone else said it, is that good enough for you? That wouldn't fly when you're underwriting either. From the insurance versus history standpoint, I'm not sure who wins. Let's call it a tie. Without the history, we'd still be guessing about what early insurance might look like. Oh, wait, we still are guessing. Who knows what else they'll find? And they're still finding crazy stuff in the areas that comprised the ancient Near East, though, of course, there are limitations. War in Syria and instability in Iran and Iraq make further exploration almost impossible for now, not to mention what might be being destroyed as we speak, either by war or by zealous religious sects who are trying to wipe out any reference to other culture in those areas. For example, in 2022, there have been some very cool discoveries in Turkey, and maybe someday we'll find more new things to broaden our understanding of the ancient Near East and Bottomry. As for Bottomry, well, as I said, it faded out in the mid-19th century, and I promise to revisit it in more detail in another episode to answer the question of why it persisted for so long, despite having a bit of a bad reputation. Also, there are lots of fun court cases 
Stay tuned. What I'm left with is a lot of questions, and I'm sure you are too. I'm starting to dig into the ancient Greeks and Romans, and I hope that that research will lead me to a better understanding of insurance's evolution. How much of that evolution was intertwined with trade? I'm also still pondering this question, which I hope I will have time to dig into. Was insurance inevitable? As I asked before, is the transfer of risk a concept that all human cultures on Earth would have come to eventually on their own? And what might that have looked like? And perhaps are there other lessons we could learn from that? I think that would be a very interesting podcast. In the end, I hope this episode has got you thinking and asking questions about how such an amazing product as insurance came into creation. It sure has for me. Thanks for listening. Show notes and a list of sources and additional reading suggestions can be found on my website, which is linked in the show description on your podcast player. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your preferred platform to be notified of new episodes as soon as they drop. And let other people know about the podcast by spreading the word. Join me over on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and tell me your thoughts about the podcast episode or insurance history in general. I'd love to hear them. Make sure to use the hashtag insurancevshistory so I can find it. My social media is linked in the show description in your podcast player as well, so give me a shout. And remember, be safe, be smart, and read your policy wording. Thank you.